So this writer says something extraordinary. He says that we are loved by a God who speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. He is not silent. You know, we're not going to we're not going to talk about this at length this morning, but I do want to kind of walk us through some ways that uh, God speaks. So God speaks through our circumstances. Saying, well, you know, I, I can't recall that I've ever recognized or heard the voice of God. Um, I would ask you, how much time do you spend in his word? Because there's absolutely going to be a correlation between how often you hear God speak into your heart Um, and how much time you're spending in his word. And then the third way that God speaks is through his Holy Spirit that takes up residence in us the moment that we say yes to Jesus. Now, I want to be clear that in my case, it's not that God couldn't or doesn't sometimes speak audibly, but I've never heard God speak audibly. When I hear God's voice, it's kind of, it's like art. It's like, you, you know, you learn to recognize somebody's voice and you're in a relationship with them. You, uh, over time, you, you, you kind of learn how to hear the voice of God. And, and this is difficult. Uh, so let me give you an example. So, because the reason it's difficult is because you, sometimes you, you, you have a thought, right? And you say, well, is that from God or is that, you know, my pizza talking to me from last night, right? I mean, it's hard to know, what, like, what's the source of that voice? And I think one way you can sift that voice, normally when the Spirit of God speaks, it will be for the betterment uh, of someone else, In other words, hey, I want you to speak Jesus to them, or hey, I want you to serve this person over here. Hey, I want you to stop and start a conversation with this person. Listen, your pizza is never, ever going to ask you to do something like that. So if you get a prompting that you recognize as being the Holy Spirit to assist someone else or encourage someone else or come alongside someone else, you can bet that is 100% of the time that is a prompting from the Holy Spirit of God because your flesh, your pizza, won't ask you to serve someone else. They just won't do that. So if you feel, if you get an impression or a sense that you're supposed to come alongside someone else, that is probably uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit talking. And what's so sobering about this is not only are we loved by a God who speaks, but what's even more sobering than that is we can refuse that voice. We can say no to the God of the universe. And so uh, he says, look, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. So when I was in college, a movie came out, got a lot of press and a lot of attention. It immediately became an instant classic. It was a movie called The Princess Bride. Anybody remember that one? It's an old one, but it's a goodie. Uh, So as the movie opens, we see the heroine going about her chores on a farm, and her name is Buttercup. I know, but I still like the movie, okay? Uh, Soon we meet a young man who works on the farm and he answers to the name (laughs) Farm Boy. I know, but I still like the movie, okay? And whenever Buttercup asks Farm Boy to do something for her, he always replies the same way. The first half of the movie, these are the only words he ever says to her. As you wish. As you wish. 
So as they grow into their bodies, uh, Buttercup seems to be developing a crush on Farm Boy. boy, And one day he's about to leave the room and uh, there's a picture with an easy reach for her. She could have reached it herself, but she says, she asks him to get the picture. So Farm Boy walks across the room, stares into her eyes, lifts the picture and whispers, as you wish. And in that moment, when she looked back into his eyes, Buttercup realized that every single time Farm Boy said, as you wish to her, when she looked in his eyes, she realized that what he was really saying was, I love you. Now, look at me. The heart that learns to say, as you wish, to the Spirit of God, opens itself up to the power of the universe. This is why the author of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. We open ourselves up to untold power. The man or woman that learns to say, as you wish, consistently to their heavenly father is really saying, I love you, Papa. I love you, Papa. See, we show our love, not just by speaking the words, but through our surrender, through our obedience. Our surrender and obedience is how God measures our love for him. And then the author begins to, he uses some really cryptic language. He quotes a minor prophet from the Old Testament, and he starts using words like, hey, he starts talking about being things being shaken, uh, both on earth and in heaven, and uh, that, that, that we're being given an unshakable kingdom, and that that's, that should prompt worship and awe and reverence in us. And so, uh, so um it's interesting because he says that he says things that can be shaken are created things created things and there's a verse in the book of Romans that uses the same phrase that'll help us get at this a little bit better it's Romans 125 Romans 1 is a treatise on um, how people can wander away from God and in verse 25 here's what it says they exchange the truth of God for a lie now let's just stop there what's the truth of God well that he exists that he rewards those who seek him who come to him in faith they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things you also serve it in other words it enslaves you and this is so important to understand and now, when the Bible, uh, when people worship created things instead of the Creator, the Bible calls that something. They call it calls that idolatry, idolatry. And when that happens, it goes south really quickly. In other words, lives get shaken. So here's how to begin to get at this in your own life. Because listen, when it, when it comes to worship, it's not about whether you're going to worship. Every one of us in this room come hardwired for worship. The question is, what are we going to worship? And so people will actually, you know, they'll move away from God and they will worship and serve or become enslaved to created things. An idol can be um, almost anything. 
Um, so an idol, let me make sure I'm clear on the definition. An idol is anything that is more fundamental to your life than your heavenly father. It is what you lean on and trust in to get you through every single day. It is what gets you out of bed in the morning. An idol is what you look to to make you happy, to provide you with identity and significance or to bring meaning and purpose into your life. And it can be almost anything, even a good thing. So what are some created things that we make idols? For others, it's security. For others, it's money or a karate. It can be one of your children or all of your children. It can be a spouse, your marriage partner. It can be achievement. It can be romance. Not a person in particular, just the idea of romance. It can be physical attractiveness. It can be a political cause or platform. So as I was preparing this week, um, I'll just walk you through one of the idols that God um, pointed out to me. So I have a good marriage. I love my wife. And one of the temptations of my life, and if you make any human being in your life more important than God, when that human being is lying in a coffin, your God is not going to be able to help you when your heart is broken. See, the truth is, our idols, and we all have them, your idol will always break your heart. And it will break your heart again and again and again. When good, let me give you some examples. And so these are secular people who are really for this book. And when you think about the title, The Denial of Death, it sounds like fun Sunday easy reading, doesn't it? Light and cheery. Well, it's not. Uh, so what he did, one of the things he predicted is that as, as culture and society move more away from God, that as people became uh, more secular, that they would simply replace that energy and effort that they used to put into walking with God and into what he called the romantic solution. In other words... Um, all that energy and effort we used to focus on God, we would place all that now on a romantic partner, expecting them to meet all of our needs, to give us significance, and to provide us with meaning and purpose in life. Now, that sounds like a lot to put on another human being, doesn't it? I mean, is it, can, a, can a human being really live up to your, your need for significance and purpose and uh, in fact he he argued that functionally we would look to them to provide all the things that people used to look to God to provide for now has a career threatening injury psychologists tell us they don't just need physical healing they need emotional healing they need counseling why? Because all of their life, their identity and their significance has been built on whatever sport it is that they play. 
And so they begin to ask the question when they can no longer play that sport anymore, who am I if I'm not an athlete? Who am I if I'm not a basketball player? Who am I if I'm not a baseball player? Who am I if I'm not a football player? And so they need, uh, they need to figure that out. There's a woman by the name of Cynthia Heimer who lives in New York City. And as many of you know, people travel to New York, uh, many aspiring actors and actresses. And she wrote an article in the Village Voice there in New York talking about some of the celebrities that she had come to know or that she had known um, and gotten to know really well. And she actually names some celebrities in this article, but I'm not going to do, I'm not going to tell you who, but here's what she writes. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, so they worked and they pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, they all wanted to take an overdose. Because this giant thing they were striving and living for, that thing that was going to make their life bearable and okay, that thing that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, it actually happened. They got it. They arrived. But then the next morning they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think when God wants to, here's how you know she's not a follower of Jesus. I think when God wants to play a practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now we know from Scripture, right, that God's not like that at all. God's loving, He's patient, and He's merciful. He's, he's you know, generous, and, and, and He's demonstrated and poured all of that out in and through Jesus, right? So we know God's not at all like that. But that's her view of God. And then, and this one... So David Foster Wallace in the 90s, in the early 2000s, was a postmodern author. And he was not even close to a follower of Jesus. And he gave a commitment, and he gave this address shortly before that. And here's what he said at this college commencement. Remember, he's not in a church service. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you've arrived. You will always lack. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they bury you. 
You worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over at least someone else to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. The hideous thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings, hardwired into our brains. And they're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without being fully aware that that's what you're even doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Because everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep and longly held belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. That I am the realest, most vivid and important person in existence. Here's what he says. We rarely think or talk about this basic self-centeredness because it is so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. I want to remind you, none of the people that I've been quoting are followers of Jesus. They're not Christians. They're just bright people who are looking at life through, uh, they're looking at life soberly for what it, what it really, really is. So if it's that bad, if it's really true that our eyes, how do you break free of that? I want to suggest two ways, and they're both so important. And the first way we see in the Old Testament verse that the author of Hebrews is quoting from when he's talking about what can be shaken, in other words, created things, versus the kingdom we're being given, which is unshakable. And so he quotes from a minor prophet, he quotes from the book of Haggai, chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 6 and 7, because this is the first clue. It's so important. So he says this, This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desired of all nations, the glory of God. Now, you don't think about it that way. You don't articulate it that way. But the source of every one of your yearnings and cravings, especially every view of the ocean, because those things all contain the residue of God's glory. This is why uh, at the end of the quote, the author says, look, our God is a consuming fire. There's nothing he can't do. In fact, let's look at verses 27 and 20, or 28 and 29 again. He says, therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Those are the two things that the author believes were meant to be. 
because of his glory. Because of his glory. Now, when you think of a consuming fire in our solar system, what do you think of? What's the first thing you think of? Sure, the sun, right? So the sun accounts, this is fascinating to me, the sun accounts for 99.86% of the mass in our solar system. Over one million of our earth could fit inside the sun. Uh, Because the sun is always expanding, one day in a distant future, the sun is going to actually consume the earth. Every second, the sun produces energy equivalent to 400 trillion trillion watts. That is enough energy in one second to power civilization for 500,000 years. So you know the sun, but I want to show you something else you look up and see in the sky. In contrast to the sun, you know, because the sun's churning with, you know, hydrogen and helium and those are its fuel, right? But the moon doesn't need fuel. It doesn't use fuel. Do you know why? Because it has no power source of its own. It produces absolutely zero energy. It is a dead planet. It can't produce light but it can reflect light. And so anytime when you look up at a night sky and you see the moon there, what you're actually seeing is the light of the sun being reflected off of the moon and back down to earth. Scripturally, we are to be like the moon. You were put on this planet to be a reflection of God's glory to a world and a culture and a society and to people who need to experience the residue of God's glory. See? And, and, that, and we were created for that. You were created to reflect God's glory back to other people. You just were. We're meant to be reflectors of his glory. In fact, I would say that every time we move away from God's and toward toward an idol of our own making, whether it be a spouse or a child or, you know, anything else, that what God does is he, because remember, we we serve a God who speaks, right? That what he's doing is colder you what your heart longs for. See, God's glory is what God gives to satisfy the longing in every human heart. So when Moses in Exodus 33 said to God, show me your glory, he was expressing the hunger of every human heart. Now again, we don't articulate it that way. We we can't reason that. Uh, But that is what we most hunger and thirst for. And and I want to walk you through that story in Exodus 33 because it's so instructive. So Moses asked God, you know, show me your glory. And God says, well, Moses, there's a little problem with that. If you see my glory, it's going to kill you. Like you can't stand up against my glory. If you see my face, you will die. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'll allow you to see the residue 
of my glory. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you in a cave, in a cliff, and I'm going to pass by. And as I do, I'm going to stick my hand in front of you to protect you from seeing me. Because again, if, if I didn't have my protective hand out there, you wouldn't last a second. And then I'm going to go by really quick and you'll get a glimpse. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and and, and it, so Moses only survived because God held his hand up to keep him safe from his glory. And the, and the phrase glory literally means weight. And this is so important because what that means is glory is something you can lean on, lean into. In fact, it has other sub-meanings, words like significance. So someone's glory could be their significance or their capacity or their otherness. Part of what we mean when we say that God has glory is that God is completely un... And, and even though we're made in His image, He's completely different from us spiritually um, in His makeup. So think of it this way. As heat is to fire, glory is to God. As wet is to water... Glory is to God. As light is to a bulb, glory is to God. Glory is what emanates from God when he comes close. And this is why the psalmist said, look, God, there's such joy in your presence. You know why? Because God, wherever God's presence goes, his glory goes with it. It just shows up. Because wherever God is... He always brings his glory. Remember the phrase at the very beginning, see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. One of the primary ways that I experience the residue of God's glory on this planet is when he asks me to do something that's going to be really hard or difficult and, or maybe something I don't want to do, maybe have a hard conversation or whatever. And... Um, I'll always, I'll always, I always feel such joy when I'm faithful, when I actually do the thing that God asks me to do, even when it's going to be really hard or uncomfortable or difficult for me. Because in those moments, I feel the residue of his glory. I feel his approval. I feel his affection for me. I feel him passions. I mean, I, it's like, you, the thing you need to know about me is I don't do, like, I don't serve God like because I'm so spiritual, I serve God because, of, you know, because he loves me and because I want to love him back and I want to love him well and I want to I do the things that he asked me to do. And so uh, my point is this, when we're faithful to do the things that God asks us to do, even when they're hard, gives us a little glimpse, just a little resonance you and I long for. It's what we live for. God is always glorified when his children hear his promptings and obeys them. So let me ask you a question this morning. Will you say to God, will you learn to say to God, as you wish, as you wish, I'll do it, God. I'm here. I'm yours. 
I'm your man. I'm your woman. I want to reflect your glory well to other people. So the first answer to uprooting idolatry from our, from our life is, is learning to hunger for what we're really hungry for, for God's glory, and learning how to get glimpses of the residue of his glory in our life. And then there's one more that's so important. Listen, if you really, really love something, can you just get rid of it by trying? If you really, like if it's the most important thing in your life, no, you can't. So, you know how you replace one affection? You replace one affection with a greater affection. So, in other words, what I'm telling you is grow in your love for Jesus. Grow in your love for what he's done for you. Grow in your understanding of that. Grow in your love for not just uh, what he's done, but for who he is for who he is, because he's faithful, and he's merciful, and he's kind. He's everything that you and I would want to be. And if you will fall in love with him and learn to love him more than that idol, whether it's a spouse or a child or money, by the way, I'm spitballing, but I would argue pastorally that the number one idol in the United States of America is money. Because money promises many of the same things that God does. It promises significance, it promises security, it promises freedom, and it promises options. Uh, So just for what that's worth, right? I totally lost my place. No, really. Awkward. Okay, I'm going to come back to my notes. Oh, and here's another way you can fall in love with Jesus. You just remember that, look, when you, when you, when you hated him, maybe hate's too strong of a word, when you were indifferent to him, before you ever loved him, he was demonstrating his love for you by dying on a cross. The Bible says at that time you were his enemy. I was his enemy. And, uh, and he died to make an enemy a friend, a brother, a son, a daughter. And when you grow in that knowledge and understanding of that knowledge, when you speak to Jesus, when you worship Jesus, you will do that with awe and reverence because he said, I love you long before you said, I love you back. This is why John said in 1 John, look, we love because he first loved us. But he didn't just say it. He proved it. He demonstrated it painfully and slowly so that he could have a relationship with you. So what's it going to be? What are you going to give yourself to for the rest of your life? Is it going to be a created thing? Is it going to be a thing that can be shaken? Is it going to be a thing that's going to break your heart a thousand times before you die? Or is it going to be the one God, the true God, the holy God. So I'm going to invite our worship team up, and we're going to sing uh, a song. My challenge to you is this. The song is called Only a Holy God. 
And I want you to let the, I want you to meditate. Let's try to bring that sense of, wow, I get to talk to a God like that. The God who loves me would speak to me. It's just incredible. The God who loves me proved it. He didn't just say it. He proved it. So I want to invite you to stand, and I'm just going to pray for you and me and us that we'll give our lives to things that are unshakable, to a kingdom that is unshakable, unbreakable. Let me pray for you and us. God, help us not to run after the lure of a lesser loyalty. Help us not to run and chase after created things. Help us not to deny the truth not to exchange your truth, God, for a lie. Help us to be men and women that would give our very, very lives to the best things, to the right things, to you. God, you and you alone are faithful. You will never break our heart for that. We are grateful. We are thankful. So we sing with wonder and awe at who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.